Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. We continue marching through the Psalms. We're, uh, oh, just a little over a third, third of the way through, and we, we haven't even gotten to 119 yet. The longest Psalm of all. Psalm 56. Hear the Word of God. Inspired and inerrant. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off Tribuneth, a mittem of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples upon me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, in whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. May God bless that word to his hearts and lives. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask now that this inspired word would be illumined for us, lighted up in our hearts, we pray that we might live to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had one other question that was asked me this week. Someone caught a peek of what the sermon title was, and and after the tossing of the caber in Psalm 55, and, and tonight kidnapped for Psalm 56, I was asked whether we were going to have an entire series of Scottish-titled sermons on the Psalms? Well, perhaps. (laughs) All I can tell you is that rumor has it that next week's sermon on Psalm 57 is entitled Fingal's Cave, which is located on the island rock of Staffa, off the coast of the Isle of Mull, the largest of the inner Hebridean islands. A... uh, a nice framed picture of which is hanging in my office. 
Mendelssohn's Hebridean Overture was inspired by the crashing waves in Fingal's cave. So next week, there will be quite a bit of moving and crashing through the text together. Now, the text before us was not written by David Balfour or set forth by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a psalm of David, the prophet king, inspired by God and whose life typified the Messiah to come. King David was not lured onto the brig covenant as uh, David Balfour was in Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, Kidnapped. Uh, He was not lured onto the brig covenant in order to be hit over the head and to find himself going at perilous speed towards slavery in the new world of North Carolina. No. But David was relentlessly pursued by the wicked King Saul, fleeing of all places in the heat of his panic. Where? To Gath, the hometown of Goliath, whom he had defeated almost as a child. Tell it not in Gath. But David must have been hard-pressed and fortified by the courage of despair to be willing to go to that place as his only hope of refuge. Like David Balfour, who was fleeing through the heather at night, sleeping and hiding during the day, as he made his way from the islands all the way south down to Edinburgh, David King and prophet found himself pursued and in a fix. But the text, the song, this singing of the inspired word of God this evening teaches us that in a fix, David learned to trust in God. And we need to as well. You see, life is neither kind nor fair. Verses 1 and 2 make it very clear that our lives are fallen and are beset by enemies. Look at verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. You see, life is not a child's cartoon. Life is not a place with a bouncing purple dinosaur named Barney who who sings nice little chanted songs and, and all the children join in with their happy faces and rainbows. Life is just not like that except on PBS. Life is a place where there's suffering and heartache and misery, and danger, and death. You know, as a child, I didn't think much about death. Maybe you're a child here this evening. And and death is something, you know, it's kind of the D word. You, You don't think about that. You don't talk about that. It's not a real thing at all to you. But you know, every time you pass... On I-10, hospitals on either side of the road. We have more of them in Houston, Katy and Houston than 
Carter has liver pills. Those are places where people who are ill or suffering or or dying go. And their, their sheer volume and all of the resources and technology and, and skill and talent in those places is a testimony to us that we're no longer in Eden and that life is hard in this place because the world is now twisted and broken by the fall. It was not always like that. Our first father and our first mother lived in a place of paradise. Uh, there was no sickness. There was no misery. There was no heartache. Did you know that your first grandfather and your first grandmother, they never had a crossword ever up until that day? But since that day, when the voice of the wily serpent was heard and Adam abdicated his responsibility to care for his family and Eve who had never heard a lie and all her life was taken in. Since that day, there has been a dark shadow over all our days. Oh, I'm not saying that the world is bad as it can be. Hell will be much worse. But it is not always a joyful and happy place full of smiles and songs. You see, our enemies, according to the inspired text, our enemies plot and scheme. Look at verses 5 and 6. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. What's interesting is it's hard to tell exactly who David is speaking of here. There are two possibilities. Maybe he's talking about those no-good Philistines. Maybe he's talking about the people in Gath, in the place where he was standing, and he looked around him and he saw the evil in their lives and the abomination before the Lord and all of their whispering against him, their suspicion of him, their slandering of his soul. And he pins these words feeling the sting of their arrows and the pain of their strife. But more likely, these words are reflective. And David is not talking about a nation at enmity with God and the people of God. Most likely, he's talking about the church, the people of God, the nation of Israel. And not just anyone in that nation, The leadership, the king, the king's men, noblemen of the land, from the highest to the lowest, there would be suspicion and whispering against David and some who wanted and waited for his life to fall into their hands. Oh, enemies plot and scheme. You do well in your Christian life not to live in a fantasy world and to think that in thought, word, and deed all is well in the land. Because in thought, word, and deed the enemies of God and of God's people do real and active harm to the saints. 
The kind of harm done varies down through the generations and varies according to the place in which we live in our time. There are Christians who suffer greatly in North Korea, who suffer starvation, who suffer suffer hatred and prejudice, and whose lives have been taken from them. There are believers who are in Africa and they find themselves faced with a form of militant Islam that is difficult to describe in the breadth of its brutality. They are chopped to pieces because they love the Lord and will not accept the Quran. And in our own place, there are Christians who find themselves hounded perhaps by unsympathetic neighbors, perhaps by government officials who are inherently suspicious now of Christians because they are so much the source of our problems, they think, in this country. Our enemies plot and scheme, and inwardly and outwardly they oppose the people of God because they oppose God Himself. Life is neither kind nor fair. But God is different. God is kind and God is fair. Praise the Lord, He is gracious as well as just. You see, God is gracious to His people. And that's very clear in the first verse. David sings out, the first notes from his lips are, Be gracious to me, O God. Why does he cry out to God in the face of suffering and misery? Because God is the one who can be kind to him. And kind to him on a moral level. Overlooking his sin because of Christ our Lord. Being in his favor and for him because they are chosen ones from all eternity. Destined to receive his covenant mercy and grace. Yes, we bump here. Just in David's opening words into the great truth that God is a sovereign Lord. And so he sets his love upon his people. And he makes choices that they themselves would never be able to make. He chooses us. He numbers us among the blessed. And his son comes and announces that there are those who in the last day are sheep. And they will hear the voice of their heavenly father say, Come, you who are blessed, enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And they will be ushered into the joys of everlasting life. And they will know the presence, the light, the warmth, the radiant joy of life forever with the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Oh, God is gracious to His people because of the sacrifice and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. But this psalm also teaches the counterpoint, something that is very unpopular even in many evangelical circles today. God is gracious to His people, 
But God is also in verse 7 said to be ferocious in His wrath. For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. Here is a note or a strand imprecatory in the psalm. It's in a minor key. It's David being carried along by the Holy Spirit, crying out to his heavenly Father to unsheath his sword and come in judgment against the nations. To come and cast them down. Not just to pause them in the progress of evil. Not just to push them back a step or two. But to unsheath his sword and bring judgment upon them and to lop off their arms and their heads that they might be stopped. That they might be called what they are. Those who rightly are forced to drink the wrath of God because no one has drunk drunk it for them. Here we bump not into election and covenant mercy, but into reprobation and that very sober doctrine of hell. You see, after speaking to the sheep and welcoming them into the joy of His Father, Jesus then turns to the goats and He says, Depart from Me, you cursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus speaks in blunt and clear terms of that judgment which is sure to come. Yes, they have been passed over when it comes to covenant blessing and mercies. But more frighteningly still, what lies behind that overpass of salvation from them, what undergirds it is the amazing, eternal, inscrutable decree of a holy God. And so they are vessels destined for destruction. Hell is a very hard doctrine. I remember years ago, hearing after class one day from the lips of R.C. Sproul, hell, he said, hell, you know, is always the first doctrine to go. It's a hard one. We like a Barney God who bounces and smiles and is so easy to get along with, who, who never notices our faux pas and certainly would not bring His judgment upon our lives. God is gracious and God is just. And He does not ignore our sin, but He deals with it, either in His Son, in His grace for us, or we are left to our own devices and face His judgment, sure. You see, all would face that condition and condemnation were it not for God's great covenant of grace which grounds ultimately the glory that He receives from us. How could David put his trust in God? Verses 3 and 4 speak of that. When I am afraid, 
I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Here David is expressing faith in his heavenly Father based upon confidence in his word or his promise. He is pointing back to the fact that as he wandered in the wilderness, as he fled for his life, as he even had to run all the way into the arms of his Philistine enemies in the town of Gath, David was one protected by the covenant hand and mercy of God. He had been promised that he would sit upon the throne. And later he would learn the riddle as to why that he was there not for himself or for his own aggrandizement or pleasure or ease, but that he was there because of one who would come from him ultimately, who would be on that throne forever and reign over all the earth. David, King David, did not fear because he trusted the promise of God. And the promise of God in his personal and in his unique and his important role in redemptive history is that he would survive. And so he could run to Gath and know that even in that place, even with all of Goliath's relatives with their hand on their sword ready to cut him to pieces, that the sword would not touch him and that he would live to tell because God had a plan of salvation and his son would come. How could David be so sure that God would fight for him? He speaks of this in verse 7. For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. David knew that God's covenant was not so much sentimentality. It was not a warm and friendly feeling that greeted you this day. The covenant has teeth. The covenant has steel. The covenant of God, God's promises where He binds Himself are yea and amen to us. And we can stand upon them and know that He will never be moved from those promises. He will keep His word. But how could David know and even feel that his suffering as he ran and and as he hid and as he was faced with one difficulty after another, how did he know and feel that his suffering were not in vain? Verse 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings or my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. You know, right now in our uh, dining room, there are about 200 little trinkets laid out still on a table, on the dining room table. We, we have everything that my cousin Rita ever thought was precious and pretty. It is all there. Please come by. Take one, if you will. And there's a little bottle there. And uh, you know what? Now, I was a ceramic engineer, and I just love glass. 
But it's uh, one of those pieces that has been fashioned and the top fits in, you know, and it's, it's just a, um, it's rough. It's not smooth glass, both on the inside of the little bottle and also around the little top that fits in. It just fits in so snugly and, and perfectly. And, and if there's perfume or, or if there's some valuable liquid there, it would, it would preserve it and not let it evaporate and just keep it forever, so it seems. David speaks here in terms of God having a little bottle. A little bottle with which He catches our tears as they fall. It's an expression or a way of saying that God notices not only the falling of a sparrow to the ground, but each one of the tears that you cry, whether you weep in the noonday sun, or whether it's quietly at night with your head on your pillow, and no one in all the earth knows that deep heartache which you feel. God knows. And He catches that tear. And He never forgets. That's why David mixes the metaphors here. He's man after my own heart. He, he speaks of tears in a bottle, and then he says... They're written in your book. God has recorded them in the ledger. He writes down each one. He doesn't forget them. They are fast in His memory and close to His heart. And we all have a bottle of a little bit different size, don't we? Maybe sometimes in our lives our bottle is fairly small and manageable. The tears are precious, but they're not overflowing. And other times we go through seasons of life, perhaps when we least expect it, and the tears come as a flood, and they fill up a gallon jug, as it were. God doesn't forget a one. Because He loves you. With covenant love. With unforgettable love. With unshakable love with love grounded upon the true Beloved, the Son of His love, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He loves you. And it's not even because of you narrowly. It's not one thing about you because you see, if it's your good looks, and if it's your charm, and if it's all the hair you have on your head, then things can change. And He might not love you anymore. But He loves His Son. And His Son is eternal. Yes, He's become incarnate. Yes, He has hands and feet and teeth and tongues. And He sees and and He speaks and and He interacts with us. Holds out a, a brotherly hand. But He is in His person divine. And so His person never changes. And the love of the Father was set upon Him before any of creation was made. And the love of the Father for the Son is never shaken. And so the love of the Father for you never moves one inch. If you're in Christ, you're in the catbird seat. You are secure. You are a member of the bride, adored 
forever by her husband. That's why David could know even before Paul ever wrote that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. He was called for a particular purpose in redemptive history and he rested there. He knew that God was for him and so he could never ultimately be shaken. And how could David really be sure? Sure enough not to be afraid? In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do for me? He boasts here, and you can't see it as easily in the English, but he throws in that all caps term Lord, because there, not only is he using under inspiration the brush of the Semitic name of God as one who is all-powerful, but then he takes out the bright, fluorescent color of God's Jewish name and he draws, he draws broadly on the canvas and reminds us that he knows us personally and loves us personally and will never abandon. And so it's no wonder that David responds with doxology. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before the Lord in the light of life. He longs to go to the tabernacle and then the temple. He longs to go and take a sacrifice. He longs to fulfill a vow. He longs to give glory to God, to praise His name in worship just like we're doing this evening, as our hearts look and long toward being changed, where all will be new and right, and we'll be ready for heaven as the sun comes through the clouds again and is seen. And as He comes with that entourage of angels, and all power and glory is seen finally to be from Him, David's life of wandering and tossing and turning pointed to him, pointed to Christ. And David's life was secure because Jesus had promised and triumphed. And David's life was fulfilled in his greater son. All that he would do and all that he has accomplished is the fulfillment of Every life that is in Him. Your life has purpose and meaning. Your life has intent and eternal worth because of union and communion with Him. Even a cup of water is not forgotten. And so the lesson from the text is clear. Though kidnapped in Gath, David trusted in God. Do you? Let us pray.